0: What has eight legs and just may be the smartest animal on earth? Welcome to Octopus Tober at Scanna. When I started researching octopus, my new book for Orca Books, I became kind of obsessed with one particular octopus expert because I loved her love for these animals. When Dana Stoff was a kid, she didn't want a puppy, a kitty, a pony, a goldfish. Nope, she's 10 and she wants an octopus. And her passion for these impossible animals never vanished. She has just released two new books. The Lives of Octopuses and Their Relatives, A Natural History of Cephalopods. Yes, I said octopuses. And Nursery Earth, The Wondrous Lives of Baby Animals and the Extraordinary Ways They Shape Our World. And her enthusiasm for octopus and squid, beyond contagious. Hi. I'm Mark Laird-Young, and this is Scanna, a podcast for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. And I've made movies and written books about orcas, promoted movies and written books about sharks, and now I am diving into the weird world of cephalopods with a new children's book about octopuses, which I'm still in the process of editing. If you would like to make it possible for us to share more stories about orcas, octopuses, and all things eco and oceanic, please join our pod at patreon.com or subscribe to our Substack newsletter, which features bonus stories about all the animals and issues we cover. Paid subscription would be fantastic because it helps us pay the bills. And also, it's a great way to share our work, and sharing our work is more essential than ever. Because right now, in case you're not aware of this, the Canadian government is at war with social media and Google, which means it is harder and harder and harder to find Canadian news and stuff like Scanna on social media and on Google, which is why we're now publishing the Scanna newsletter every couple of weeks and sharing news stories about all things eco and aquatic from Canadian media outlets. So whether you are in Canada or not, this is the place to find out what is happening in the water here. So please Share our episodes, share our Substack newsletter, share our social media. We are still on most outlets, really kind of hoping to get off Elon's platform soon. And now, the author of Monarchs of the Sea, The Lady in the Octopus, and Squid Empire on what makes cephalopods so special, Squid Squads, and why octopus are awesome.
1: My name is Dana Stoff, and I'm a marine biologist and an author with a specialization in cephalopods, which is octopus, squid, and their relatives. And I think the the thing that I think would be most interesting to do for cephalopods in an academic sense is extend their lifespans, because the sort of quintessential conundrum of most octopuses and squid is that they are extremely intelligent animals with extremely short lifespans. Most species live for one year or less. That's entirely from hatching through maturing and mating and laying eggs and dying, and In that time, they learn, they develop all kinds of behaviors and creative problem solving solutions to their environment. Uh, They cope with change, they cope with other members of their species, members of other species. And I think that most of us who have worked with them and are interested in them and study them would just love to know what they could do if they had a longer lifespan. And in particular, if they lived in. Long enough to overlap in generations and pass on knowledge and learning and culture to the next generation?
0: Wow, that is a science fiction answer because I've read various pieces on octopus where people are going, if they actually had childhoods or stuck around for more than a year, they would be ruling the world.
1: Right? It seems likely.
0: I, I mean, it seriously, that was the biggest shock for me when I dove into the world of octopus was how long? They live how long?
1: Yeah.
0: It just, the fact that they basically come out of the box or come out of the egg, understanding the world, just boggles my mind.
1: Yeah, it's totally wild that they don't have any parental care. You know, even in the species where there's parental care for the eggs, which octopuses are famous for, of course, that the mother octopuses stop eating. They stop going out at all. They stay in their den protecting their eggs. Um, And there are some squid that actually brood their eggs as well. But even in those species, it does not extend past hatching. So, yeah, as soon as that hatchling is out, it's on its own. And they have this incredible capacity to, yeah, not just understand their environment, but but learn from and adapt to it. But yeah, what if what if they could learn even more for years and years? What if they could pass that knowledge on? Anyway, I think it'd be very cool. And it hit me too when I got into octopuses as a child. I was about 10 when I just like absolutely got into these things. And I started keeping them in a home aquarium. And then I had to stop. Because I kept two octopuses and each one lived for less than a year. And I got so attached and then so heartbroken when they died.
0: Now, can you tell me about serendipity? Serendipity was your first one, right?
1: She was, yes. (laughs) Uh, So that was my very first pet octopus. And the, the lead up to getting her was that my family had gone to the Monterey Bay Aquarium and I had seen my first octopus up close in person there, which was a giant Pacific octopus. And I fell in love and I thought she was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And octopuses were my new favorite animal and I had to have one as a pet. And After a long time of working on my parents, who surely thought that this interest would fade, my dad said, let's figure out what it would take. And so we did the research together, which at the time in the 90s involved less Googling and more like physical magazines that we found uh, for with articles in them about how to care for exotic species and how to keep a saltwater aquarium. Um, We found a used saltwater aquarium got it set up 60 gallons, which is pretty big, like it was big enough that I could have climbed in there as a kid and and just had a little nap. But instead it was for the octopus, got it set up in my bedroom. Um, we had to get it cycled, which means keeping animals that are more sturdy than an octopus, which is actually like quite a fragile thing to try to keep in captivity. So I kept some fish, kept some snails, finally got my first octopus, which was much smaller than the giant Pacific octopus. It was just like palm of my hand size. And I I uh, had read all of this stuff about it. So I got to put it into practice. So I'm looking at this octopus, staring at her tiny, the tiny suction cups on the tiny little arms. And I was looking to see if any of them were enlarged because male octopuses are identified by having enlarged suction cups on some of their arms in most species. And I couldn't, I never found any. And so through lack of evidence for it being a male, I said, must be a female. I named her Serendipity because Serendipity was the name of a sea monster in one of my favorite books. <laughs> and so, and, and, and Serendipity, the sea monster, the whole moral of the story that she was in is that she was born to save the seas and she grew large enough to basically like frighten all of humanity into taking better care of the oceans. <laughs> so I named my tiny little pet octopus after her and, uh, and it was awesome. What species was she? So this is another thing is that it was, it was a lot harder to find this information at the time. There was no iNaturalist to like upload photos. And, and the people at the fish store, at the tropical fish store where I got her, you know, they, di- they didn't really know. It was just whatever the supplier said, which was usually common octopus. Now, even in scientific literature, the scientific name for the common octopus, octopus vulgaris, is considered to be a wastebasket taxon. I don't know if you've come across that term before, but it means that it's, it's, for a long time, it's been the default species that a lot of different specimens get thrown into, the common octopus. And scientists have realized that a lot of them are probably different species. And so in the last... 10 years or so maybe even more than that scientists have been carefully splitting them apart by looking more closely at their anatomy by looking at their DNA which helps a lot so anyway it was i think that was probably what, what the aquarium said if i remember or not the aquarium sorry the fish store that it was a common octopus and then i did some more reading in whatever limited books were available and i think that that we ended up concluding that since i was in california and it was probably locally sourced that she was probably a red octopus or a ruby octopus octopus rubescens um, and then the second octopus that I got was some kind of two-spotted octopus because he had these little bright spots, bright blue spots on the side of his head.
0: It's fascinating how little we know and how long it takes to figure things out about them. Like the aquarium that I'm getting to visit here to work on my book in Sydney, BC, they just got a new octopus a couple of days ago. They still aren't 100% sure on gender. And it's a giant Pacific octopus. Uh-huh. And, like, I just got an email this morning going, mm, probably female, but ask us in a few days.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. like, It's probably immature, right? So there's yeah. not much to go on. I mean, unless you're going to dissect the thing and look at its gonads. And even then, the like the early stage gonads don't look very different in the sexes. So,
0: so what was it about octopus that caught you? I remember going to the Vancouver Aquarium as a little kid. And outside of the orca, the octopus was what i wanted to watch because it's just like okay you're something totally different whatever you are is just totally different what caught you at the monterey aquarium
1: i think that's it i think for me it's this amazing combination almost a contradiction in that the octopus embodies that is at once totally different from any other animal that we've that we typically encounter, you know, the closest related animal that we would encounter on land is a garden snail, is a mollusk, a slug maybe, if you happen to pay a little more attention and notice the slugs and they are they're in the same phylum the mollusks but an octopus is is nothing like a snail it's it's evolved in a completely new and different direction and so it's different it's so different it doesn't have any bones it's nothing like the vertebrates um it has like endless features you can list that no other animal has the chromatophore system in the skin the inking the bioluminescence that some species display in the skin or in the suckers or even in the equivalent of ink, you know, the bizarre brains that they have, you could go on and on. And yet this is the contradiction. They also, I think for a lot of us, when we look at them feel familiar because they have two eyes and they're looking back at you. And there's this sense of an awareness that is present in both of us. Like here is an animal that perceives us visually and we tend to be very visual animals and is possibly like forming some thoughts about that. Uh, They're taking in their environment, noticing things and coming up with ways to respond that are oddly resonant for us. They do things that we recognize as tool use. They do a lot of things that seem like play So there's this tension, I think, between the alien and the familiar in them.
0: Did your octopus do anything like play? Like, did they have toys?
1: the The octopuses that I kept, the two of them, before I decided I couldn't do it anymore, um, would like they liked to do tug of war with my fingers. So if I would be bringing in a little food item, they would reach for it. But if I didn't let go right away, then they would they would tug back, and I would sort of let it come, and we we would play back and forth like that. And I, I definitely sort of perceived that the food was more enjoyable for them that way. Like if I just dropped it, they would tend to get less excited about it than if we'd played with it a little bit first. So it was presumably some enrichment, they would do interior decoration. So there were, I had a lot of shells and rocks and things in the tank. So they would move those around and sort of get their den set up just the way they wanted it.
0: Nice. Now I saw your talk on octopus and aliens <laughs> and. Quite love that. Can you talk about the various alien octopus <laughs> theories and explain where that comes from and that they're not alien. They're I think you called I I think you called them something like the first earthlings. Oh you went the other way around?
1: I don't remember saying that particularly. Um I mean they are definitely our fellow earthlings and and some of the oddest ones that we share the planet with. And I think it is funny that people The idea of them either inspiring aliens when we imagine them, which has been happening for a very long time. The Martians that H.G. Wells imagined in War of the Worlds are like somewhat octopus-like tentacled monsters. Um, But so whether they're inspiring us or whether we're looking at them and, and wondering, you know, did you come from outer space? Do you even belong here? You're so weird looking. I find it very funny in part because I was totally obsessed with aliens as a kid. And that was definitely part of the appeal when I started getting into octopuses. I was like, okay, for years I've been drawing aliens, imagining aliens, reading about aliens. And now here is the closest we've got in the real world to aliens. So I totally get the appeal. But I think I think they're even cooler when you realize that they've evolved here on our own planet from a common ancestor. 500 million years ago or more then if you think oh maybe they're so weird because they came here on an asteroid or something like that
0: wrapping my head around the idea that they are twice as old as dinosaurs took some doing
1: yeah. yeah 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 and i think that i i can sometimes be a bit glib when i talk about it and i do have to Then follow that up with octopuses themselves are not twice as old as dinosaurs. The group Cephalopods is twice as old as dinosaurs. And it is amazing. And it's absolutely worth taking time to wrap your head around. But we can also remember that those ancient representatives looked very little like the squid and octopuses that we have today. They were inside these shells. And we don't even know how many tentacles they had.
0: Can you talk about that? Because I... I felt that you gave me the best handle on the evolution of cephalopods.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I'm really glad to hear it. So yeah, that was um, that was actually the first book that I ever wrote was about the evolutionary history of cephalopods. And it was originally called Squid Empire and then retitled Monarchs of the Sea. And it was such a treat to write because even though I'd been obsessed with these animals since I was a kid, I realized when I came to writing a book, sort of switching over from marine biology to being an author that I didn't know their evolutionary history. I knew a lot about the ones in the ocean right now. So it was a treat for me to get to interview all these paleontologists and kind of integrate then the incredible knowledge that they've been working on into this this book for the lay public, but also for me, because I wanted to understand it. So this picture that I ended up pulling together from talking to these, these incredibly knowledgeable experts is that the first cephalopod evolved Sometime in the Cambrian, which is this time period about 500 million years ago, when a lot of the first representatives of different animal groups were evolving. There were a lot of trilobites, uh, which are a type of arthropod related to our modern insects and crustaceans. There were the earliest sea stars and sea urchins. Their their sort of ancestors were evolving at this time. And so were the early mollusks. And I mentioned slugs and snails. So we have these early, early shells that were we... Recognize as mollusk shells. And then some of those had this incredible evolutionary innovation where the shell became separated into chambers. They evolved the ability to, to make walls so that there were separate chambers in the shell. And then they could fill those chambers with buoyant gas. And it was, it was a total game changer because these were the first cephalopods and they could lift themselves up off the seafloor instead of crawling around with all the other trilobites and snails. And then they could be these predators that nobody ever saw coming because they were above everything else, just floating around. And it's so cool to me that that was what made cephalopods because it's not what we think of. It's not the tentacles. It's not the ink. It's not the camouflage. It was this buoyant shell. And then over tens of millions of years, they evolved with this buoyant shell to become some of the largest animals on the planet, and then to have to compete with the early fish that were coming into existence, the early sharks and the dunkelosteus that had all these armored segments on them. And They could have gone extinct. A lot of groups did when something else evolved that was better able to fill those niches. But these big shelled and small shelled cephalopods just continued to evolve sort of alongside the fish, which are our ancestors. And so the rest of their their evolutionary history really is this arms race with our ancestors, with vertebrates. As the fish got more and more agile and more able to move and better able to swim and hunt, well, so did the cephalopods. And so they evolved coiled shells that were easier to grow or easier to maneuver and then, of course, eventually, they evolved internal shells, which became the reduced or absent shells that we see in most cephalopods today. And that opened up all of these evolutionary possibilities that we've seen them explore to fantastic effect.
0: Can you talk about the value of losing those shells? Because that's fascinating to me that they lost what you would think of as their protection.
1: Right. Right and not only their protection but their innovation you know that was what made them cephalopods and yet they they have such a flexible format to their to their bodies that they were able to keep evolving and they had the resources to evolve all of these other traits in the absence of that shell so yeah the the shell itself gave them buoyancy which let them swim and it let them be able to move around without having to fight the pull of gravity so that they could exist in the water column. But it also took time to grow. So it slowed down their growth rate. Growing a shell like that requires resources. Um, In addition to just the general nutrients that you need to grow your meaty body, you need extra nutrients, calcium to grow the hard shell. And it also had its limitations. Uh, A lot of times shells could be drilled or cracked or broken by various predators. So they're not even perfect camouflage. Uh, Perhaps ironically, octopuses are some of the best shell openers out there today. They're incredibly skilled at breaking, drilling, prying open other mollusk shells. And so... The ancestors of octopuses and squid, over time, their shell became smaller and lighter and reduced, and they were able to grow faster. And at some point, they were able to grow their soft body on the outside of the shell. And we don't really know all the processes that would lead up to this. We have seen that there are other animals that stretch their body around their shell, like the cowrie, for example, is a kind of snail. They have very smooth and beautiful shells because they often have their whole body stretched around it, smoothing it out and making it all very beautiful. And so it's possible that that was like the early cephalopods, um, or sorry, the early coleoids, which were the group that had the internal shells, did something like that as one of their steps. We really don't know but eventually, we start finding in the fossil record these shells that were that are clearly internal. You can even see in some of the really well fossilized Lagerstätten that there's the imprint of the skin on the outside of the shell. And once the skin is on the outside, it opened up the the possibility of evolving camouflage. They became a lot more hydrodynamic. They could grow in these sort of perfectly streamlined shapes for swimming through the water. And the smaller that internal shell got, the more flexible they could be in their shape, which is how we end up with octopuses today that have either a tiny shell remnant or no shell at all and can squeeze under rocks and through cracks and into tubes and all kinds of wacky stuff.
0: Yeah, that ability to squeeze through things, escape and hide, that's where you sort of look at the intelligence and go, How in the world do you figure this out? Right? Just now I know that you're a huge fan of squid. Can you talk about the difference between octopus and squid? And also what is it that gets you excited about squid?
1: It's a good question. So Octopuses and squid are both coleoids, that group of cephalopods that has an internal shell. Um, But squid basically evolved for swimming and for speed. And so their internal shell is now uh, this stiff rod called a pen or a gladius. And it's not calcified, um, so they can grow it really quickly. But it's stiff enough that it gives their muscles something to work against. And so a squid, like this print that I have on the wall back here, has a long, thin body that's like a tube, but it's only open on one end. And through the open end, they pull in water and then they they that inflates their mantle, their tube body, and then they squeeze it out through a very tiny siphon. And that is jet propulsion. And it pushes them very quickly through the water and their whole, the whole shape of their body has evolved to be really good at swimming really fast. Most species have, all species have a pair of fins. They're different shapes in different species. They can use them to flap or to glide or to direct their swimming. And they have a number of species actually have the ability to jet out of the water and fly through the air like flying fish for a short time. So they're all about swimming and speed and moving really fast in the open ocean, both to get away from predators and to get their prey. And then in addition to that, they have a different number of appendages. So they have 10 instead of the eight that an octopus has. Both a squid and an octopus have eight arms. And then the squid also has these two long elastic tentacles, um, which again are sort of related to this whole theme of speed. They can shoot those tentacles out super fast to grab a fish or a shrimp or another squid and then pull them back in. Um, so it's called a tentacular strike, and it's how they catch prey really fast. Now, an octopus also has a mantle and a siphon, so they can actually swim with jet propulsion, but it's not what they've evolved to optimize. They tend to do it rarely. Uh, again, it depends on the species, and some species of octopuses do actually have fins like a squid and will move more readily through the open water. But as a general rule, the octopus body shape has not evolved for speed. It has not evolved to use jet propulsion very often. Instead, they tend to move by crawling moving on those eight muscular arms and by sneaking up on their prey rather than chasing it down. Oh, and I guess how did I get into, I guess I sort of like rhapsodized about squids so you can tell that I really like them, but I did have to convince myself a little bit because I was first and foremost an octopus person. And then when I went to grad school, the lab that I found to work in was a squid lab. And I hadn't actually been a big fan of squid. Like I wasn't anti squid. I just like hadn't really spent that much time thinking about them. Um, But as soon as I started interviewing there, I was like, Oh, they're super cool. Because you know, they do camouflage the same way that octopuses do they like the fact that they're underwater rockets is really, really cool. Like almost no other animal swims like that. It's just like sort of yet another way that cephalopods are amazing. So the jet propulsion is cool. That's one of the things I ended up studying on their camouflage is really cool. And they I think one of the things that is really neat about them is that they are often not thought of as the smart cephalopod. Octopuses tend to get all the attention for having complicated behavior, solving puzzles, uh, playing with Uh, Legos or whatever in captivity. And I think what's, what's really interesting to me is that's really down to the fact that we can't keep squid in captivity. Most species are impossible to very difficult. And so they might be capable of very similar things to octopuses, but we just don't know because they are these fast swimmers. And that's not something that's easy to keep in captivity. An octopus wants to chill out in its den and explore the ground And that resonates with us as humans. We're like, yeah, we build a house and we go for little walks. And it's just a lot easier to keep an animal like that in captivity and give it tests.
0: I was floored to realize how long it took to discover that there were giant squid out there. Like, obviously, there were people who'd encountered giant squid, except none of them were official scientists. So can you talk about why it took so long to figure out that giant squid were real and not like local legends, which I gather is how someone saw them it's Well,
1: it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, I think it is, it's actually a bit of a failure of the scientific enterprise that it, it has historically tended to be a little bit elitist and sort of like, okay, well, we're not going to pay attention to the local knowledge of people who've lived on the water for generations and maybe know what they're talking about. <laughs> but at the same time, like we as humanity, we're very interested in separating what might be stories that are based in fact from facts that you can measure and put in a jar and describe and take DNA from. And so this, this question of like, is the giant squid real or is the kraken real? I think part of the problem is that these are real animals that inspired a lot of myths and legends. And so there was this Real challenge to separate those and say what part of it is real and what part of it isn't. And we still, there's still so much that we don't know about them that people might ask, well, could there be one that's 10 times bigger than anyone that's ever been seen before? And you have to say, like, technically, Yes, in theory, that could exist because we have not taken a picture of everything that exists on Earth. But uh, but also we're learning more and more about them. And I think that the the ability to explore the high seas and the open seas when that came with the sort of the age of exploration and then even more so with industrial ships that were able to really spend a lot of time on the ocean and collect specimens and bring them back was finally when people were like, okay, we're seeing stuff there and we're getting a chance to separate what might just be people's armchair hypotheses from what's actually out there in the water. I was
0: kind of shocked to discover something that you brought up, I think, in almost every talk that I've seen you do, which is that everything eats them. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's fascinating to me.
1: It is. It's so, it's so like awesome, but also kind of tragic, but also awesome. Like squid especially are like the protein bars of the ocean. They have no hard parts. Uh, They have no bones and they have no shell and they're all muscle. So they're a pretty nutritious meal. And if you can catch one, you're going to eat it. That's true for any large enough fish, uh, including lots of sharks. Uh, It's true for marine mammals. So there are seals and sea lions and walruses, not to mention all the cetaceans, dolphins, porpoises, whales. For whom, squid are a huge part of their diet. Some species eat primarily squid. And it's true for other squid. Squid will absolutely devour other squid. And I think one of the reasons that they're so central to oceanic food webs is that because of evolving away from having a hard shell, they can grow really, really fast. And so the same thing that makes them a really nutritious meal, that they're just flesh, basically, allows them to grow really fast, which brings them, us back to that short lifespan that we were talking about. So they grow in six months or a year from this teeny little hatchling to like a big meal that an albatross can eat, that a dolphin can eat. And that that it's very efficient they're basically gathering a whole lot of small nutrients and putting them in one package so they're really important to all of the food webs in the near shore and the open ocean environment and deep sea and and this is lots of different species that i'm talking about here not one species of squid but like dozens and dozens of them
0: do you have a favorite encounter with either an octopus or a squid like have you met one that's really blown your mind or
1: oh that's a good question um I mean, I think that the, my favorite to observe have been these squid called reef squid that actually look a lot more like cuttlefish. They have, they're, they're fairly small squid in this kind of size range, and they have fins that go all the way around their mantle, which is typically something that we see in cuttlefish. But but they are squid and they swim in groups. And I did a small research project on them in Bermuda one summer where we were actually trying to bring them into the laboratory. And unlike other squid, they are not as speedy. They're not jetting around all of the time. And so you actually can keep them in captivity because they spend a lot of time with that fin rippling, just hovering in position. And the people, the uh, my collaborators and I were trying to teach them to distinguish between a horizontal Lego and a vertical Lego. Uh, we would feed them when they came close to the horizontal one, and not when they came close to the vertical one. We had this whole experimental setup, and like many sort of early career projects, I, I was uh, this was before grad school. Actually, it was the summer before grad school. We didn't have enough time to really get conclusive data. But they're really beautiful animals to observe, and I think one of the thing that I like about observing them so much is that they tend to move. In in groups, which we now are, are working on calling squads. Uh, there's another group of uh, there's a whole group of squid researchers that we've decided together that we really should call groups of squid squads. And so, oh, absolutely, right, right, right. They're they're similar to a school of fish, but different. Um, the way that they interact with each other, they don't use the same sort of lateral line system that a school of fish uses. The, in, a, in a group, a squad of squid, they can actually all be moving in the same direction but some of them can be going forwards and some of them can be going backwards because of jet propulsion and the fact that they can go any direction they want when they angle the funnel. So looking at a squad of reef squid, whether it's Caribbean reef squid or Southern reef squid, there's a couple of different species. It's just really magical because they move all together. They orient together. They'll watch you as you're going through the water to see what you're up to. And they seem to to communicate with each other. It's, it's the species that has been most studied in terms of potentially having abilities to communicate between members of the same species. And so I feel like that's kind of the closest that we know of to what I was talking about at the very beginning of cephalopods that are able to kind of share knowledge with each other.
0: Fantastic. We
1: should talk about your baby book. How did that happen? And can you tell me like the
0: best things about the baby book, like the best baby stuff you found out?
1: I can Thank you. Yeah, so this is the most recent book I have out called Nursery Earth, the wondrous lives of baby animals and the extraordinary ways they shape our world. And this book is my baby. All of my books are my babies, of course, but this one perhaps more more than any other, because it came out of a real confluence of interests and things in my life in a, a topic I'm really passionate about, which is that babies of any species, humans, any other animal, even plants, though I didn't get into it too much, are whole important organisms. They're not like incomplete adults. They're not just steps on the way to what's important. They themselves are active players in food webs. A lot of insects are incredibly intense predators when they're babies and then don't eat anything as adults. So they are they are the part of an animal's life cycle that's most malleable, most able to sort of integrate information from the environment, whether it's changing temperature or changing predation pressures, and use that information to build a more effective response in their own body and in their children. And so I just feel like, you know, babies are the future in a very literal sense, as well as the present, like they are creating the world as they grow, as they develop. And as a parent myself, I have two children, like, obviously, it's sort of a personal thing, because I've been, I grew them inside my body. And then I've been watching them continue to grow and build themselves out there. But also when I the most of the research that I did on squid was actually on baby squid. And I was studying these tiny, tiny things that are going to grow up to be enormous adults. I was working on the Humboldt squid, which can be five or six feet long as an adult. And the babies, when they hatch, are the size of a grain of rice. And there's millions of them. And this is also what really brought home to me that at any moment, most of the animals on earth are babies because every reproducing adult makes more babies than will replace it. Because there's attrition, because there's always babies that are going to be eaten, babies that are going to die. And if they don't, that's how you get population explosions. For things like the crown of thorns starfish that sometimes has huge population explosions and it's devastating for coral reefs, it's because all those babies that they're always making, more of them survived. And so, then you end up. so anyway, I could go on and on. But the I think what was really exciting for me was to be and, and hopefully for readers, too, was to be able to look at these this life cycle, the stage in every animal's life cycle that we often if we think of it at all, maybe we think of it like, oh, they're cute, uh, it, whether it's chicks or kittens or something and see them as so much more than that, these active players that are shaping our ecosystems, shaping the future, sometimes in terrifying ways. Uh, you know, m- Most of the crop pests are baby insects. But I think that I find all of them to be adorable in their own ways. And, and I hope I was able to pass on some of that joy and excitement.
0: What were some of the biggest surprises when you were working on it?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I think a lot of them were insects because I didn't know that much about them before I started studying them. And so, for example, I learned that a number of caterpillars have been shown to, like, we think of caterpillars as sort of like dumb eating machines that eat enough to metamorphose into a beautiful butterfly. Well, for one thing, most caterpillars metamorphose into moths. There's way more moth species than butterfly species out there. So that was an interesting thing to, to learn about and realize. And another is that caterpillars can learn. They can learn what food is good to eat. They can build little shelters for themselves. And they can, even though they go through what we call a catastrophic metamorphosis, where their body base their baby body, their caterpillar body, breaks down and they rebuild a new adult body, they can carry memories through that process. And so one of my favorite interviews was with this this person who studies skippers, which are closely related to moths. And they, she found that she could teach the caterpillars something. And if they were really young, then they wouldn't remember it when they were adults. But if they were a little older, their brain would take that information and encode it in a way that they would retain it even after going through metamorphosis.
0: I thought that was really cool. That is very cool. (laughs) Could you talk about baby squid and baby octopus? Like what is their world like?
1: So much that we don't know. I mean, the stages that they go through, in particular, the the little Humboldt squid that I was studying, they actually go through the stage when they hatch that their two stre- those two stretchy tentacles are actually stuck together in something called a proboscis, and it's just one thing that extends and retracts and extends and retracts. And as they grow, it unzips to make the two tentacles. We don't know why. <laughs> But it's got to be something to do with how they're hunting and how they're eating, since that is that is what that tool is evolved to do. But it's bizarre.
0: That is so cool. What's the story behind your other book? I can't believe you've got two books coming out in the same year. That's fantastic.
1: <laughs> it's been intense.
0: That's good. So what's the scoop on the second book?
1: So the the book that's coming out in September, I have a little advanced copy here. That Natural History of Cephalopods? It's so shiny. This is called The Lives of Octopuses and Their Relatives.
0: I've got Dan Lives of Octopuses and Their Relatives, A Natural History of Cephalopods.
1: That's it. Yes. And um, this was an interesting one. The other books that I've written were all kind of like, I had this idea and I wanted to write it and I you know, worked with an agent and worked with an editor and got a lot of great feedback. Um, this one was different. This was the publisher approaching me and asking me to write this. They have a whole series of natural history books and they're all really lushly illustrated. Um, I can sh- see if I can show you some of the pages here. So like, A lot of this book is profiles of species where there's this beautiful picture of the animal and then a little description of it that I wrote and where it lives and all of that stuff. So this is just the cephalopod entry in that series. And I feel really fortunate that I was asked to write it and that the the editor that I worked with gave me a lot of creative leeway and we went back and forth on the shape of it. And so what I ended up writing is a chapter by chapter description of the environment's that cephalopods live in. And I love that because I got to learn a lot. It makes the book something that is uh, is not the same. There are uh, a couple of wonderful cephalopod guides that really focus on just the biology of cephalopods and a, an overview of, of the species and all of the main groups. And I didn't want to like sort of step on those toes because those exist and they're wonderful. And so this one, I really focused on the environments that they live in. And then the profiles could focus on, okay, sandy habitats. How have cephalopods evolved to cope with sand? And then um, then I got to learn about and explore this wild burrowing octopus species that secretes this really sticky mucus that it, it liquefies the sand, burrows down into the sand, and then uses this mucus to glue the walls into position so that it doesn't have the burrow collapse on itself.
0: Wow. When you just showed me the book, there were a couple of transparent ones that I'm fairly sure I recognized can, can you tell me about those? Because they're so stunning.
1: They're so gorgeous. That was probably, that was the midwater section. So I was talking about the, uh, so that chapter talks about this environment in the open ocean. There's no structure. There's no like rocks or kelp forests or sandy beaches or anything. It's just water. And the animals that live there still need to find their prey and hide from predators. These are the basic things that all animals need to do. And one of the best ways to be unseen in the open ocean is just to be transparent. And so a lot of these cephalopods, instead of using their camouflage, like an octopus in a kelp forest might try to look like kelp or a cuttlefish in a rocky area might look like a rock. There's nothing else they can look like. So they just look like nothing. They just have incredibly reduced chromatophores. Um, They have tricks for making even their internal organs look kind of transparent. Um, If there's something that they can't make transparent, they'll often make it reflective so that it, it will just sort of reflect light instead of Anyway, instead of making a shadow, uh, sometimes they have photophores, which which produce light, sort of strategically arranged to block out any shadows that their eyes or their gut might be creating. They're totally wild.
0: What are your favorite odd octopus facts? Because you you seem to have them all at your fingertips, so... <laughs> uh,
1: of course, now that you've asked, um, I won't be able to remember any, but odd uh, octopus facts. I mean, one of my favorite things is that they swallow through their brains. So the central brain in their head is shaped like a donut and it goes around the esophagus. So every bite that they take has to go right through the middle of their brain. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I feel like it's just an example of how like things are generally not evolved to be optimal. They're just, if it's good enough, then evolution can work with it. And that's what you get that's with your donut brain.
0: Awesome. Now, you also write fiction. Can you just talk just a little bit about that and what stories you're telling in fiction and choosing to tell in fiction?
1: Yes, I would love to. So. As you may have guessed from my answer to your first question, I love asking what if questions about nature and about science. I've loved reading science fiction and fantasy, speculative fiction, we'll put it all under that umbrella, since I started to read. And I've also loved writing it that long too. Like I was, I was writing silly little stories in the margins of my notebook since I was a little kid. And the the stories that I like to write are there's a lot of times the ocean and a lot of times cephalopods show up in them and. That question of what would happen if they could live a little bit longer is one that I have been exploring in one of the novels that I'm working on is what if, and this is uh, based on a real research study that people have done, that If you remove this particular gland, the optic gland from an octopus, it affects the fact they're aging. Basically, it kind of prevents them from aging in the same way and from going through this process where they lay eggs and then die. The optic gland seems to control that and reducing its impact or taking it out makes them live longer and makes them keep eating instead of laying eggs. And so I thought, what if that became just a routine Behave a, a sort of a routine surgery that humans could do on our pet squid and in this world we have big squid like the ones that I studied but even bigger that people ride the way we ride horses now and they do this routine surgery on them when they're young they take out the optic gland so that instead of breeding and laying eggs and dying they can live for several more years get very large because they keep eating and and be these sort of riding squid and racing squid that people then race through and and I get to integrate all kinds of things you know there's uh there's risen sea levels in this scenario so that there's the possibility of racing squid through these higher seas over, you know, sunken cities and things that are now underwater to have a lot of fun with that
0: kind of thing. That sounds awesome. And what should humans be doing to help octopus? Do they need our help? Like what's going on and what are we doing to mess up their world that we need to watch out for?
1: I mean, I think that we know for sure that there have been a lot of human-directed negative impacts on the oceans. And I think fundamentally, it's that large-scale stuff that is imbalancing the oceans, affecting them through ocean acidification, as well as rising temperature, as well as affecting the sort of physical habitat when trawling takes place, when explosive fishing takes place. All of those things together are destabilizing ecosystems, which affects octopuses as much as any other animals that live in them. There are octopuses that depend on coral reefs. There are octopuses that depend on kelp forests. Um, Here where I live on the west coast of North America, the kelp forests that I grew up diving in have been just absolutely hammered by this interesting set of impacts that sort of, it's like a cascade of probably climate change created impacts where we had this blob of warm water in, I think, 2013 that impacted the kelp because they need cold water. And we also had sea star wasting disease, which scientists are still trying to figure out how that's connected to changing temperature and other changing impacts that took out the sea stars that preyed on the sea urchins that in turn, once their populations could explode, thanks to baby sea urchins, because a sea urchin can make millions of babies, And so if there aren't as many predators, those can grow up to millions of adults. And then they decimated a lot of the kelp forests on this coast. Um, And so I think that rather, in my mind, rather than trying to focus on individual species of octopuses that might need help, they, like everything in the ocean, will benefit from us paying attention to the health of the ocean.
0: Fantastic. That seems like a perfect place to end this off. Thank you so much. This has been. Oh my gosh, okay. thank
1: you. You're a delight to chat with. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, so great to meet you. And I hope we'll cross paths in real life soon.
1: Um, would it be too much to ask for a copy of your book whenever it's ready? Oh, I would, I would be delighted
0: to send you, you a copy of the book.
1: Oh yay.
0: That would be awesome. Awesome. Thanks again for checking out Scana with Mark Laren young Please subscribe so you don't miss upcoming interviews with Gloria pank on her film Co-Extinction, author David Schiffman on Shark Myths and Mysteries, and one of the world's top cephalopod experts, Jennifer Mather. And please join our pod on Substack and at Patreon.com. Your support helps us pay for the tech and the human beings required to make these episodes happen. And the more support we get, more we can do. I'd also like to thank all our Patreon patrons, including Susie Venuda, Simon McNair, Robert Anderson, Darren Learn Young, and Joseph Wask. Scan is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, publishers of my three books about whales for younger readers, my two books about sharks for younger readers, and my next book for younger readers, all about octopuses. And a very special thanks to our friends at Eaglewing, Whale Watching, and Wildlife Tours. Please follow us on social media. We are still there, even if it's kind of being hidden a bit because the Canadian government war with social media. And please share the show with your friends. And since we're harder and harder to find because of Canada's war with Google and social media and news scraping sites, share this with everyone, everywhere, however you can. Reviews on your favorite podcast provider. Always appreciate it if this podcast does not work for you. This is Only Murders in the Building, and I'm Steve Martin. Scanna is stationed in Saanich, B.C., territories the Saanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. Our executive producer, the always awesome Ray Manu. scanna site, courtesy of our Wizard of Web, Kitty Brown. Research, thanks to the unsinkable Courtney Bell. Audio Magic, courtesy of our powerful producer, Bug Lewis. And Scana's theme song, Scana, is by Lee Abramson. <coughs>